So the focus of these 13 verses that we're looking at is all concentrated on faith and works and the interrelated concepts there. And the terms are mentioned no less than 10 times in 13 verses. So I'd just like to read uh, the portion that we're going to be focused on today, or up to that portion, beginning in verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself or alone. Verse 18. But someone may well say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Now, what is the crux of the problem that's plagued this passage over the years? The focal point of contention is actually found in verse 24, if you look down there. You see, James wrote, that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Them be fighting words, especially Martin Luther, right? That's why he called it a a worthless epistle. This statement seems as a direct contradiction to the Apostle Paul's teaching on justification in other parts of the Bible. You can take down these these references. Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or Romans 4 verses 1 through 5. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works he'd have something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. In Galatians 3, Verses 6 through 11. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it, his belief, was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then you who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. And as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. This is what the Jews were hung up on. They were trying to perform the works of the law for their righteousness. Now they they failed miserably and thereby offered sacrifices daily and yearly 
goes on to say, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man will live by faith. So the answer to the seeming contradiction here, because if you just read what I just read, and then you read James' statement in verse 24, you'd say, the Bible contradicts itself. But it doesn't, really. The answer to that seeming contradiction between James and Paul is discovered when the context of each portion is taken into consideration. I'll never forget in Bible school long, long, many years ago, we had a teacher who would say, context, with a capital K, (laughs) to always get in our minds, think of the context of the passage you're reading. When this is done, Paul and James, far from being antagonistic to one another, are seen to both be defending the gospel and correcting errors against it. The verses quoted above from Romans and Galatians are usually the ones called upon to prove that Paul taught something different from James. But we must ask a simple question. What is the overall theme of the books that were quoted above, and what audience did Paul have in mind in each case? The overarching theme of the book of Romans and Galatians is justification by faith. through belief in Jesus Christ alone. In Romans, Paul wanted his readers to understand the great truths of the gospel of grace that God justifies the guilty, condemned sinners by grace alone. So naturally, he stressed belief and faith and railed against works of righteousness which many were trying to gain righteousness with God through what they did. law-keeping, or just normal attempts to please God by good deeds. His attitude toward any self-effort, Paul's, for gaining merit toward salvation is summed up well in Romans 4.4. He says, now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. He was anathema on works, righteousness. That is not the same as what James was talking about. Paul addressed those who were plagued by a legalistic works righteousness worldview that they had been taught and they needed the works of keeping the law in order to gain justification with God. That was the main teaching of the Jewish religious leaders of the time. You remember Jesus taking them to task. They believed the Mosaic law had to be kept in order to be accepted of God. And the works of obeying the commands of the Old Testament in their mind was the only way to God. And Paul's ministry was to preach the wonderful, burden-freeing truth of the gospel of grace, that a person is saved by faith alone without the works of the law. And he got in a lot of trouble. They stoned him. They chased him, right? Because he was going against what the Jewish people believed at that time, which was wrong. They, they got it wrong. The law was to bring conviction of sin and, and, and judgment to them. As they tried to keep the law, they would discover they could not do it. And it should have driven them to God to call out for mercy, of which the Messiah brought. But it didn't, because we're all legalists. We all think we can do something to please God. Even as believers, 
We can fall into a works righteous mindset that somehow if we just do, 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 God will be happier with us. He is no more happier than he could ever be because Jesus said, it is finished. The work of salvation is done. I'm not telling you to not do good works because we're going to get into that in a little bit, but it's not to gain favor with God. Our faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. I love this. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A greater message the gospel brings. It bids me fly and gives me wings. Right? That's the gospel. And that's what Paul preached. Now, James, on the other hand, he was addressing Jewish believers who had grasped the gospel of grace and in contrast to their previous tenacity in keeping the law. Some of them, for some of them, the the pendulum kind of swung to the other side and they downplayed works of any sort. I was raised in a religious community that taught good works were the way to gain righteousness with God. And so when I became a believer, I was kind of anathema on good works until I read 2 Peter chapter 1 and it revolutionized my life. It was the first sermon I ever preached before I had any training or even instruction in preaching. I taught a group of people about what we're to add to our faith. We add these things to our faith. It was revolutionary to me. It was a brand new thought because works were okay once you're saved. I wasn't doing those works to become saved. I was saved, and I did the works because of that. Well, some of these Jewish believers... The pendulum had swung, and they downplayed the works of any sort, and and they were tempted to become antinomian. Their religious life was against law-keeping on any level. Antinomianism basically means against the law, and theologically, it means that it's a belief that there are no moral laws expected of Christians to obey. There are some people that believe that today, In our day and age, uh, they're free grace people. Uh, They believe that they do not need to do anything because they're saved by grace. And so if they drop the F-bomb, so what? It doesn't matter. It's all under the grace of God. Oh, they just dismiss so many imperatives in the New Testament in their antinomianism. Paul stressed faith alone for justification with God, right? Right? Rather than performing works of the law, James declared works to be the authentication of justification of his readers. And they had those works because of their justification, not to gain that justification. Therein lies a difference. Paul emphatically insists that no one could ever earn their justification through their own efforts. Instead, he stressed their need to accept the faith and forgiveness of sins through the finished work of Jesus Christ. James, addressing Jewish Christians in a dispersion, those claiming justification by faith alone apart from works, stressed that a life of good works was the natural outflow of that saving faith that they had exercised. You see, he taught that good works were the spiritual product, the outward exhibition of the inner transformation that that faith had brought to them. Even as Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians, he believed the same thing James did because in 
in Ephesians 2.10, he says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Many of you might be thinking right now, well, what are the good works? What are the good works? Well, the fruit of the Spirit, the one another's in the Scripture, the Christian life as it's laid out in the epistles, those are the good works. And they're all Spirit-motivated because we have a regenerate heart now and the Spirit of God lives within us and motivates us to do these kind of things. We're not doing it to gain favor with God. We're surely not doing it to gain merit with Him for salvation. We do it out of a heart of gratitude and thanksgiving for what he has accomplished in our lives. At least we ought to be, right? So, suffice it to say that both Paul and James viewed good works as a proof of faith, not as a path of salvation, okay? The good works that James is talking about, and Paul referred to in in, the second chapter of Ephesians, is those were the proof of faith and not the path of salvation, now, last week I made clear the comparison between biblical, uh, the biblical view of faith and justification and all other religions, all of them. You can think of any of them. I'm not just talking about Christian religions that believe in this, but other religions outside of Christianity. The biblical view is faith equals justification plus, plus works. The works come out of that justification we experience by faith. Faith is first. All other religions, bar none, all other religions have faith plus works equals justification. You have to believe and then do something in order to please the God that you're trying to serve, whether it be Buddha or whoever. Okay? All the religions is faith plus works equals justification, and that is wrong. That's terribly wrong. James goes on to explain his position that genuine faith must prove itself by its production of works. He does this by showing um, this in four ways in this section that I just read to you. Number one, there is a faith that does not save. In verses 14 through 17, we talked about that last week. This week, we're going to talk about faith being more than words. More than words in verses 18 through 20. Then there's next week, which we're going to talk about two biblical characters, Abraham and Rahab, and I'm really looking forward to that because they were justified by works. (laughs) And we're going to talk about that next week. And then finally, the wrap-up, faith and works are inseparable, verse 26. So that's our whole section that we're in today. We're in the second part of it, verses 18 through 20, and talking about faith being more than words. So let's go to a word of prayer and ask God's blessing upon our time. Father, as we consider these things, um, help us to take them and bring them into our mindset today. Help us not to just shuffle this off to a first century type uh, mode where that's what they did, that's what they believed, that's where they were wrong. But help us to understand where even in our own hearts We could be tripped up by works righteousness. And Father, we really pray that if there are some who are uh, a part of this message, uh, either here listening or watching it um, through the online services, Lord, and and they have duped themselves into thinking 
that they are saved because they are doing certain things or because they can recite certain orthodox creeds because they know that Jesus is God and they raise their hand at a campaign one time or they said a sinner's prayer one time and they just go back to that and their lives don't evidence the works that would be continuously forthcoming from regenerate hearts. Lord, may this message strike home to them, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, in verse 18, there's a strange proposition that is made, at least the first part of it, without evidence. But someone may say, or may well say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So, James starts off by presenting a simple contrast. The verse starts off with, but... And that is an adversative. And it shows a transition from something different or contrasting from what has been previously stated. And he's imagining that somebody will have listened to what he said in verses 14 through 17, his first teaching and first go-around with faith and works. And they might promote or, 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 or propound this. Someone might well say, you have faith and I have works. I heard one commentator or I read one commentator said, it's like they... they give this category to people that have gifts. Well, you have the gift of faith, and, and I have the gift of works. No, don't, don't go there. That's not anything that James is saying here. Some counter-argument is being presented here. Uh, it's a, he, he invents this person, someone will say. It was a very common device at his time, James Day, for introducing the words of an objector. And Paul used them often as seen in Romans 1.19. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? Or Romans 11.19. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. 1 Corinthians 15.35. But someone will say, almost exactly the wording that we have today. It was kind of an a entree into argumentation that was being presented and James signaled this is something someone might say in response to what he had said in verses 14 through 17. But someone may well say. This was an anticipated response by James. And many have struggled trying to figure out who the pronouns I and me are. Leave it alone. Go at a higher level. Look at it from 10,000 feet. Don't get down into the weeds here. Because you missed the whole argument, which was James wanted his readers to focus on the uh, objection that will be raised whenever you talk about works and faith. The someone wanted both works and faith on equal status. James says, uh-uh-uh, don't do that. 2.18 shows the suggestion of almost a moral equivalence, as though the imaginary man might say, my faith is the same as your works. You have faith, I have works. But the first clause, you have faith, provides no evidence, and that's where James goes immediately. No evidence for the faith. It's a mere verbal profession. The man that James presents here is a picture of one who says... He says, he speaks it out. 
He professes that he's got faith. And the tense of the verb is in the present tense, which shows this is the lifestyle of this one with no works. (laughs) He says he's got faith, but he consistently shows he has no works. That's James' point here. It's a profession of his faith marks his life, but there are no works. Back in 2.14, where we saw another hypothetical person, James identified there as he has no works. If I was John Bunyan, I'd say he is Mr. No Works. Okay? He's Mr. No Works. The present tense is used there as well to show that this one has no works. It exhibits his whole life is a continuing characteristic of having no works whatsoever. Here in 2.18, James identified the hypothetical person, once again, as a comparison he lays out between the person with faith without works against himself, I think, a person with faith with works. One person said this, this does not imply that the claim is hypothetical. Now listen, because this is important. People can be self-deceived. This does not mean that the, the claim is hypothetical, An inact of faith may be sincerely held. Oh, how many people I know that claim to be Christians. They claim that they will be going to heaven, but they really do not have faith with works. They have a profession only. In assenting to Christian truth, the man regards himself as a Christian. But the second part of verse 18 deflates that possibility. Because James says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You see, it's it's all about these works coming from a faith. The second clause provides evidence. I will show you my faith by my works. Both parties claim faith. The hypothetical opposer has his faith without works, but James provides something that shows his faith, and he calls it his works. How many of us have known individuals that profess that they're believers, that they're Christians, that they're going to go to heaven? Maybe some of your family members. But their lives show a lifestyle far less than what the Bible describes as the life of one of those who truly believes. The entire point of verse 18 is that a mere profession of faith is not enough. It's not enough to save. It's not enough to bring personal assurance of salvation. It's not enough to challenge others to believe. Let me point out our friends in in Ukraine right now who remained in Kiev when they could have easily gotten across the border to Poland and then on to Germany and back to the States. They have works that are testifying to their faith. And those works scream out to those friends that may not be believers in their neighborhood that know those people that have stayed put because of their faith. That's that's a working faith. Far too many people profess to be followers of Christ, but they don't follow him. They say something entirely different from what their lips profess. And very sad thing about this situation is that there are many false teachers and false religions that assure such professors that all is well. 
In their zeal to eliminate good works as a requirement for salvation, some teachers have gone on to extremes of arguing that good works are not even a valid evidence of salvation. They teach that a person may be genuinely saved, yet never manifest the fruit of salvation, a changed life. Seriously, they would call themselves evangelical Christians. And they hold to this doctrine and they'll fight for it. A few have even taken the absurd position that a born-again person may ultimately turn away from Christ into unbelief, deny God, and become an atheist, yet still possess eternal life. One writer invented the term for such people as unbelieving believers. The man I'm talking about is a graduate from Dallas Theological Seminary. Scripture is clear that a saved person can never be lost. It's equally clear that a genuine Christian will never fall back in total unbelief. That kind of apostasy proves an individual was never really born again. 1 John 2.19 says they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. Pretty clear. A little crazy, right? But it's true. I mean, when you have... And I've been in business long enough now, right? To see people that I really loved, really poured my life into, and they just kind of totally turn in an opposite direction, and they're no longer going to church. They're no longer professing Jesus Christ. And what's up with that? Who are these people? (laughs) Whereas R.C. Sproul said, what's wrong with you people? You know? (laughs) Bless him. So to sum up James 2.18, a more verbal, a mere verbal profession of faith does not guarantee true saving faith, though it is all that many claim to be saved actually possess. And that's a burden to me as a pastor. And it should be a burden to you as a believer The works James proclaimed to accompany his faith are non-existent in many professors' lives. Secondly, mere orthodox affirmations are not enough. So mere professions of faith are not enough, and mere orthodox affirmations are not enough. We see that in verse 19. You believe that God is one. That is orthodoxy. Well, you do well, but the demons also believe and shudder. Jewish orthodoxy had always accentuated and centered itself in the belief of the one true God. It's stated succinctly in the Jewish prayer, the Shema, which devout Jews pray morning and evening. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, Deuteronomy 6.4. This is the heart of Israel's monotheism. The irony of this declaration is that the Hebrew verb for hear, Shema, carries with it the idea of heeding or obeying what is heard. It's not just hearing. It's hearing with obedience. It's one thing to repeat the Shema, but the living out of it is seen in the very next verse, verse 5 of Deuteronomy uh, 6, is something else. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. If you truly 
were an Israelite that believed, truly believed in Yahweh, you, your whole life would be dedicated to Yahweh. If you are truly a believer today, then you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord. He's the boss. He runs every element, aspect of your life. Thoughts, aspirations, everything. So many people say they're believers, and yet he is not Lord of their life. They run their lives lock, stock, and barrel. Don't be that person. So we see that to recite and believe the Shema without following through with the love of God with everything that they were would amount to less than nothing. Isn't that the meaning of Galatians 5, 6 where Paul wrote, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. Means it's useless. But faith working through love. Working through love. One time in Indonesia, a colleague and I visited numerous Dutch Reformed churches. Uh, They were on an island. Uh, Indonesia is a a country made up of islands, okay? It's an island nation. And um, on many of the islands, the tribal people that are unreached people groups live in the center part of the island, and there may be churches, Catholic churches, Dutch Reformed churches, etc., on the outskirts of the island on the coastlands. And then interior, there's nothing happening at all. And on this one island, there were a lot of Dutch Reformed churches, so we were doing survey work, uh, work uh, foot survey work, and we stopped into many of those Dutch Reformed churches, and we marveled at the clear presentation of the gospel that was contained within the liturgy of the Dutch Reformed church, which they recited weekly in their services, but we could not discover one true believer out of hundreds of people that we talked with. Not one regenerate person among the hundreds of people reciting the true gospel every week in their liturgy. What a tragedy. Truly, Calvin's words are true. The seat of faith is not in the brain, but in the heart. The Dutch Reformed liturgy is an examination of ourselves according to three parts. Number one, everyone should consider himself and his sins and the wrath of God do him because of his sins, but also take into consideration that Jesus took that punishment upon himself. Number two, everyone examines their own heart, whether they believe this faithful promise of God that all who sins are forgiven for the sake of Christ's death on the cross. Number three, everyone examines his own conscience, whether he uh, purposes his whole life to show thankfulness for the promise and to walk uprightly and to lay aside all enmity and, and, and every type of envy and hatred. And it goes on in more detail to explain the life that a true believer would live. This is in their liturgy. They recite it every Sunday. Not one regenerate person. You see, just mouthing truth does not save you. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says that if you confess with your mouth, yes, that's part of it, Jesus is Lord, and, and, Kai, it's connected, 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes. Now, James lapses into a little snarkiness here. He says the demons believe also and shudder. Just a little twist. I like James. I'm looking forward to meeting him. He's very practical. Demon faith is not saving faith. And the point James' declaration that demons also believe that God is one is to emphasize the fact that just as a mere profession of faith without the kind of works that attend true saving faith is useless, so is the mere intellectual agreement with the propositional facts of orthodoxy. Because even the demons attest that God exists and that he is one, James 2.19. In Matthew 8.28 or 29... When Jesus confronted the demon-possessed man in the tombs out of his mind and not even be able to be held with chains, the demons cried out to Jesus, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? They know who he was. They know who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. And of course, in Genesis chapter 3, in the temptation of our first parents, the devil, in the form of a snake, said to Eve, indeed, has God said? He knew what God had said. They know God's word. Luke 4.41 shows a time when Jesus was healing many, and the Bible says, quote, demons were coming out of many, shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak. That shows power over the demons. Rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ, Messiah. They knew what his work was. Mere knowledge and even acknowledgement of that knowledge is not saving faith. So demon faith, the mere intellectual understanding of truth about God, his son, and the work of Christ is no guarantee of salvation. It's not a proof of saving faith. Mere intellectual acknowledgement does not a believer make. Titus 1.16, a very, very scary verse, actually. It says this, They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him. Being detestable, which actually means to stink, being stinky and disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. They have deeds, but they don't go along with what they profess, and therefore they really are worthless for any good deeds, which would be a profession or a proof of their faith. Well, last point, faith without works is useless. But are you willing to recognize, James wrote, you foolish fellow, that faith, Without works is useless. Now here is God's plea. And it's a great, a great note to end on for the sermon today. It's God's plea through James' words for anyone who has been trusting either in their mere profession of faith or their mere intellectual understanding of the Bible. But they're without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Need to repent. If you're in that position, I don't care how long you've been coming to church, repent. Turn the other way and stop trusting in your profession 
or just what you know if your heart has not been transformed and your life doesn't reflect it. I'm not talking about being 100% sinless and a saint with a halo around you. We're all sinners. We all fail. But are you truly forgiven and have, has the Spirit of God invaded your heart? Has the love of God been shed abroad in your heart so that you can exercise that love towards others? Such works are proof of a changed heart. He says four very interesting things. Number one, you need to be willing. You need to be willing. The Greek word for willing here refers to a desire that comes from one's emotion, a desire which comes from one's reason. It represents an active decision of the will. Will you be willing? James pleads with the man. But are you willing to recognize something? You need to have an intentional reversal of your thinking and the life direction from mere intellectual assent to a full-hearted belief. And you will be saved. But you need to be willing to recognize something. That word recognize is a basic meaning of taking in knowledge in regard to something or someone, but it's a knowledge that goes beyond the mere factual mental assent thing. Gnosko is the aorist tense which calls for a definite act of acknowledgement by the objector. It is an experiential knowledge. You see, a lot of people have never made the, the trip from the head down to the heart. And they got a lot of knowledge. I'm talking about a lot of people that go to Bible studies and have attended churches. And, you know, if you're in the other faith denominations, you've been baptized and you have been catechized and you have been confirmed and yet you've never gotten from here down to here because if you're only up here it doesn't count for diddly squat it's a zero with the rim knocked off that's what james is saying this is scary stuff people scary stuff i i testified to you before from this pulpit that a man who had been a christian for probably 45 plus years He was a teacher, no. He was the principal of Grace Community School, down at Grace Community Church. And John preached a message one day, and he got saved. And his baptismal testimony, I will never forget, it was marvelous. He said, listen to me. I thought I was a believer for 45 years. I had all the head knowledge. It had never traveled to my heart. It can happen. Thirdly, he says, stop being foolish. So be willing, be willing to recognize something experientially, take it in, and stop being foolish. A word means uh, simply to be empty or without content. Literally refers to containers as empty. But figuratively, to things that lack effectiveness. Refers to a person who is empty. Opposed to truth that true saving faith produces works of righteousness. And fourthly, to believe faith without works is absolutely useless. To understand that truth. Now the King James uses the word nekras, which is death. And the New American Standard uses argos, which uh, basically is, is translated as we have it in a text here where he says... 
um, that faith without works is useless. I go with the New American Standard, but both of them are fine. (laughs) Necros, dead, meaning non-producing, right? Or useless, which is non-producing. Argos, which is the useless, is uh, used to describe money that was yielding no interest or a field that lies fallow. As employed in the New Testament, it always describes something inoperative or unserviceable. Argos describes that which is not working. It's worthless, ineffective, barren, not yielding a return. Doesn't accomplish anything. And James says, oh foolish man, are you willing to admit that faith is use- that kind of faith is useless without works? Jesus once saw a tree that was not producing fruit. I'm sure you all remember it, the fig tree. And he said, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Works are really important, but not for gaining salvation, but for proving to yourself and others around you that you do have saving faith. James never meant for a person is saved by doing some kind of good works, but what he did mean is that true saving faith will always be known by lives filled with good works. True saving faith results in good works. Faith is the source of good works, not the other way around. Good works are never the source of faith. Never the source of faith. Well, thank God that he's so clear in explaining the difference between a faith that works and exposes the religions of the world to be useless because they're all based on works that result in justification. And that religion, James says, is both dead and useless. I pray that it That's not the case for any of you. If you're confused about these things, if you want to talk about this stuff, please don't be afraid. I mean, we're talking eternal destiny here. This is important stuff. And if this dear brother down at Grace Community School could confess freely and rejoicing, filled with thanksgiving that God finally saved him, you can too if you're in that state. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, Thank you for James, brother of Jesus, and the boldness with which he wrote, and the clarity, the simpleness with which he wrote. So practical, so helpful to us. Father, we confess to you that we can get ourselves into a tizzy, um, just thinking deeper than we should actually think. Father, help us to just be practical, help us to be realistic, help us to be in sync with who we are. And help us to yield ourselves over to you as our Lord and our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.